I don't think you could get the best Hollywood set designer to create that, <laughs> the environment I saw. First of all, because it's organic and authentic and real, but it was just so perfect. Like so much of what you see in Havana, you know, we're not used to seeing things that are are real like that. It's not curated. That w it wasn't this gym, which was so filled with flavor and it was kind of run down, but had this grace and grandeur to it. Um, you couldn't, you could, you couldn't fake it. You can't fake something like that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is author T.J. English. T.J. English came on my radar with two of his books on Cuba, which are some of the most celebrated, Havana Nocturne, and most recently, The Corporation. The Corporation is going to be turned into a big film starring Benicio Del Toro. English's work is tremendously cinematic, and I think what you get from him is a sense of what Cuba was while the mob ran it. And you get a sense of, of what Kennedy described as we created Castro. We created this revolution where the vast majority of businesses on the island were American-owned. And, um, you know, this, this didn't come from the top down. This came from the bottom up. And uh, English is able to animate and illuminate that time better than almost anybody that I've read. And uh, so I was thrilled to talk about those works. Also, his book, The Westies, is a classic. And uh, coming up as a journalist, uh, what it was like for him to arrive in New York City some decades ago. And uh, so I hope you enjoy TJ English. Well, I want to get into the Cuba stuff, but as I was researching you, I was amazed at this journey you made from Tacoma, Washington, which was, I think, the first American town I ever visited from Vancouver. Yeah. Um, so somewhat familiar for me of, oh my God, this is America, even though Tacoma, Washington has very little in common with most of America. But you go from Tacoma, Washington, uh, an Irish Catholic family of 10 kids. Your dad's a steel worker. Your mother's a social worker. My dad did a lot of work with social workers, uh, teaching them court procedure and that kind of thing, wrote a textbook for them. Um, but I'm just wondering how you go from that background to becoming one of the world's authorities on the Cuban mob. Uh, that is quite a trek from there to 1981, coming to New York City, driving a cab, bartending, worked as a janitor, uh, freelance journalism, Walk me, walk me through where you where you began and and to to where you got to, a little bit. Well, the only thing I can figure out is that it all starts in the imagination, hmm. and so these things about where you were born and raised, which can be essential, in some cases, to the development of a person, um, sometimes can be not that relevant or maybe relevant in ways you wouldn't expect. I do know, I, I always think of Marlon Brando, you know, having been born in Nebraska. Uh, right. I would see Brando's performances as an actor when I was a young man and I'd think, oh my God, what a, what a, what a worldly person. Mm -hmm. what, a, what, a, what a someone who must 
have experiences from all over the globe. He can play different nationalities. He can play different accents. He was born and raised in Nebraska. Um, it makes me think that uh, sometimes places like Nebraska or Tacoma, Washington are templates for something else. You're, you're, you, you grow up in an environment like that with a very active imagination. I mean, I wanted to get out of there. I dreamed about getting out of there from a very young age. Hmm. I think I felt a sense of isolation. I felt like I wasn't really experiencing the world. I was in this big family of 10 people, which felt kind of repressive to me. And so I started uh, writing and reading when I was pretty young. And I think this was sort of a porthole to the outside world. Uh, I was born in the late, late 57. So I was a child growing up at a time when Fidel Castro in Cuba kind of, in a way, dominated the... Uh, the American political discourse, was, it was at least it was a kind of central narrative of it. And so you see it on the news every night at dinner, Cuban Revolution, this young guy who took over the country. It was all very exotic and interesting to me. And I, and I could see that it had some sort of relationship to the United States that was singular and unique. So I grew up with that knowledge, and I got into my teen years in the 70s and continued to be fascinated by Cuba and Castro. And this is long before I ever got there or ever dreamed of going there. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about it, it um, starting in the imagination. Um, so I was fascinated by it. It's something I was fascinated by. It was, was in my DNA for some reason from pretty early on in life. And so then I uh, started to write about the criminal underworld and organized crime became a focus for me. And I've always tried to find interesting ways to write about that subject, sort of kind of coming at it from slightly different angles than straight on. And it wasn't long before I started to think that that era of the American mob in Cuba was like, Oh, it was the Rosetta Stone for understanding a lot of things about Cuba and the United States and the relationship between the two countries. And also, um, it was just a great untold story. Um, when I got on to the idea of writing a book about it, you know, there was, the, there was Godfather Part Two, and that was about it. You know, the, um, nobody, I mean, the... the the story of the mob in Havana sort of existed in people's minds because of that movie, but nobody had taken the time to do what nonfiction writers are supposed to do, which is, you know, burrow into the subject, research the subject, and uh, and address it on a, on a grandiose level. So it was just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting to be done. I mean, the whole time I was working on that book, I kept thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm the one that gets to do this book. Mm. Well, and, and, and so you, you moved from Tacoma. You, went, you graduated high school in Los Angeles. Um, and then you, graduated high school in Tacoma and then went to college in Los Angeles. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's right. And then you started working as a high school teacher in East L.A. You did, yeah. First year out of college. And were 
are you already writing at that point? Did you, were you already very clear on where you wanted to be career-wise as a writer? Then? No, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about career, but I was writing. I mean, I started writing in grade school, and uh, all my sc formal schooling, high school, college, I wrote for the school newspaper. I was, I was sort of uh, apprenticing as a journalist. That's what I got out of out of school, most of all, to be honest with you, I was sort of an indifferent student and I wasn't that crazy about it, but I, I, I got immersed in these projects, the school newspaper and the school yearbook. And, uh, those things kind of became my life. And the college I went to Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, a, uh, Catholic, uh, Jesuit school, um, had a really good weekly newspaper. Hmm. And I was an editor on that newspaper. So it was a very good apprenticeship. So yes, I was always writing and I had sort of I had sort of seized on the idea of journalism is is the way to go. And you you move quite quickly to New York City in nineteen eighty one. What what is New York City like in nineteen eighty one? What is that first day like when you arrive? Was well, it your first time in New York City when No, I'd visited once before in the seventies. Um, you know, I had a deep, I had a deep abiding, uh, emotional, spiritual desire to be in New York from pretty early in life. I don't know when exactly, but like, you know, 14, 15. So by the time I got there in 1981 at the age of, uh, 22, I think, um, it was a very powerful experience. It was like going to a place you'd always imagined in your in your mind. And so it was it was powerful on all those levels. New York in 1981 was in really bad shape. Uh, it was at the tail end of the 70s. It, it was in the middle of a long period of decay that would continue until at least the end of the 80s. And so, you know, it was uh, crumbling ruins. It was a, it was a wreck. It was a, it was a dying city. I mean, it was filled with vitality and all kinds of interesting things. But aesthetically, on the surface, it was, it was, <laughs> it was horrifying. It was, uh, it was like an abandoned city in a lot of ways. Uh, but for a writer, or for anybody who. For anyone who has a concept or an idea of their mission in life involving going out into the social universe and connecting with it and learning about it and telling stories about it, it was heaven. It, it felt like heaven. In fact, New York, coming to New York is one of the few times in life, other than maybe a few romantic relationships that I've had, where the expectations were exceeded by the reality. And I had high expectations. And yet mm -hmm. New York was even more than I expected it to be. In what ways did it exceed your imagination? What stands out looking back on it? As a proving ground, as a testing ground, it was a challenge. It was whatever skills you think you have, uh, people skills, ability to navigate the social world, ability to um, go from the environments of the rich to environments of the poor and being able to um, 
uh, get by in those worlds and 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 flourish in those worlds and learn things and enrich yourself. This was a challenge of New York, and it was a constant challenge. Like every day, you'd walk out, and it was like, oh boy, what's what am I going to run into today? Because you got to remember, back then there were like crack dealers in the street. I was living in the East Village, and uh, there was a lot of um, drug trade right right out in the street, openly in the street. There was a lot of uh, gunplay. You would hear gunshots in the street. Um, it was an environment unlike anything that I had experienced. I'd seen it in movies, and I'd heard about it and wondered about it, but I'd never had to navigate it myself. And so as a proving ground, as a testing ground, as a place to examine who you are and figure out who you are, uh, there was nothing like New York. So where... Where is the place where you're first working as a bartender and as a janitor? Where, where are those two jobs located? That all started in New York, although I had briefly been a, a bartender before. Um, if you're Irish Catholic, you get typecast in that role. <laughs> Easy. Um, so uh, I, had, I attended bar in San Francisco. Briefly, I attended bar. Um, Janitor was in New York. That was kind of a real job. That was a local 32 B&J, which is a big union in New York City. So that was like a real union job that paid well. Um, and I could have easily gotten trapped in that job because it was sort of a well-paying nine-to-five job. I did it for a couple of years, and I realized I, if I continue to do this, I'm going to get trapped, and I'll never get out of it. I wasn't really writing at the time. I wasn't doing journalism. Um, so I left that job and then I started driving a cab in, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in 1985, I guess. 85 to 88. Um, this was a really seminal experience for me. It was kind of a period where everything came together. Um, it was uh, it was the ultimate. The only thing I can think to compare it to is when people tell me about going into the military or going off to war or something, it's one of those experiences where you're, you're going to be tested. Part of it was, um, well, there's so much about cab driving. Number one was learning the geography of the city. Um, the cab driving took you around all five boroughs to all parts of New York City, and this was an incredibly valuable thing it made the city a lot less intimidating um gave me a knowledge of the lay of the land it was really uh incredible experience so you know i could be watching the news one night and they'd have a report on some shooting that happened in east new york and i would have a reference to that neighborhood because i'd seen it i'd been through there so it really brought me in touch with uh, new york city you know in a way that was very profound um Driving a cab, uh, you were exposed to all the economic strata of the city. You get all kinds of people in a cab, from rich to poor. You got to deal with all kinds of people. Uh, that was amazing, amazing experience. I don't know of any other endeavor where I could have had that kind of experience. And then I was working as a freelance journalist at the same time. I was only driving the cab at night, and I would do writing assignments and writing during the day. 
So I was kind of on all cylinders, writing, journalism, experiencing New York through cab driving. It was, it was some kind of a peak experience in my life. What, do, you, do you remember your first writing assignment, your first paid writing assignment, freelancing in New York City? Well, that's a good question. Um, I know I did a few things like book reviews for the Village Voice. I had a few of those kind of assignments before I, I ever had a, like a reporting assignment. Um, I, I do remember doing a piece for them uh, about Mickey Featherstone, who was the, uh, the main character in a book I wrote called The Westies. And I kind of told the story from the point of view of Mickey Featherstone, who had been a member of the Westies, who turned against the gang, testified against them, went into the witness protection program. And I did a story for the Village Voice for them. That might have been one of the first sort of reporting assignments. And that... I did quite a bit of stuff for the Village Voice. Huh. Um, you know, I was pitching, as a freelancer, I was pitching assignments all over the place. And it was pretty hit and miss, to be honest. I had more luck with the Village Voice than most places. They were more open to a fresh writer without a lot of, without a lot of credits. And uh, they seemed to have kind of a... Back then, the Village Voice was really good at telling stories from the street. So I could do things like uh, write about the uh, Bed-Stuy boxing gym in Bed-Stuy write about it for The Voice. I could write about the, the criminal underworld in Chinatown, which was something I was writing about a lot in the 90s, and having a hard time finding publications with any interest other than The Village Voice. And then I started writing for a magazine, a, a couple publications, Irish America Magazine, which was a national magazine based in New York. And then they did a spinoff, a weekly newspaper called The Irish Voice, and New York-based Irish Weekly. Um, and particularly for Irish America Magazine, this was like a dream thing for me because I started doing a lot of assignments for them on all subjects, you know, crime, politics, entertainment, sports. And they would be really interesting stories just kind of from sort of an Irish American point of view. For instance, I went to Chicago to cover the mayor's race in Chicago one year. <clears throat> for Irish American Magazine. I covered a fight in Las Vegas, Barry McGuigan championship fight in Las Vegas in 1985 for Irish American Magazine. I was on the set of John Huston's last movie when he made The Dead based on the James Joyce novel. Um, so I would have all these great assignments um, from in, you know, all kinds of subject matter and I would, I would try to think up interesting ways to come at it, and it was wonderful. So it was writing about a lot of things that interest me from a point of view that was really interesting to me, the Irish-American angle. Um, and that was lucky, you know, because when we start out as writers, you can often sort of get stuck, you know, writing for a computer magazine or something that really doesn't interest you very much. But sure. you're, you're doing it because you need the clips and the credits i i i just want to circle back i i meant to ask you um it's it's often remarked according to the data that you're more likely to get killed driving a cab than you are as a policeman 
And I wonder, were there any, I mean, the New York of that time was so wild and dangerous. Were there any close calls? Were you ever robbed? Did you ever see any, you know, examples of just uh, extreme kind of New York at that time? Yeah, uh, a driver in the garage that I drove out of got got murdered while I was there. And that was a very um, emotional thing for all of us who worked there because we knew him. Yeah, it was very violent. I think there was one year where there were 25 cab drivers that got murdered sometime around 1987 or something. It was perilous because you were, um, it was a cash business and you were out there. And this was the crack cocaine years. I mean, 85 to 88 when I drove a, a cab was the, the, the homicide rate in New York was around 2000 and just kept going up and up every year. And these were desperate uh, street shooting type murders, a lot of them. So, you know, you'd be driving around in a cab parked at a red light in a bad neighborhood at a certain time of night. And they know you're you're like a big fat turkey sitting there. They know that you got cash on you. Mm-hmm. You're a sitting duck. So, yeah, robberies. I got robbed. Uh, I got robbed a couple times. Um, one of them, one of them is kind of funny because it was stupid. You know, like a lot of people who were driving in the eighties, who were driving cabs. I had I had been influenced by the movie Taxi Driver. Sure. And uh, so there were a lot of young drivers in the garage that would come in, and the old drivers always knew who were the young drivers who were there because they had seen the movie Taxi Drivers. So for instance, I was there one, one day and I had a cigar box. I was putting my money in a cigar box and I'd have it there on the front seat next to me. And an old time driver looked at me and he said, taxi driver. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, taxi driver. He said, you, you, you saw taxi driver and he put his money in a cigar box. And so now you're putting your money in a cigar box. But let me tell you, that's a stupid idea because a cigar box is a very easy thing for somebody to snatch out of your front seat. So I kind of laughed at that and didn't pay any attention to it. Months later, I'm at, I pull up in front of Penn Station with a, with a, to pick up a fare, and it's rush hour. It's like madness. And back then, there were all kinds of scams at these stations, and one of them was there'd be a couple young guys who would act like they were intermediary between people coming, arriving at the station with luggage and stuff, and they'd flag down a cab for the people, and then they'd expect you to give them a tip, and they'd try to get a tip from the person they flagged down the cab for. So I was, uh, I was, I was hip to them, and I, I knew what they were up to. But So I, I get out of uh, – they pull up with a, a family, like four people with luggage, and I got to go back to the – trunk to pop the trunk to put the luggage in the trunk and when i'm back there i put the luggage in the trunk and i go to shut it and one of the scam artists is like holding up my trunk so i can't close it and i'm thinking what the fuck and then i realize oh shit i go around to the front seat and the cigar box is gone two-man operation he got me back to the trunk and then he kind of slowed me up back there while his buddy went in the front seat and snatched the cigar box Oh. And the minute he snatched it, I thought, oh, shit, the guy, the guy in the garage told me about it. So it, well, that was stupid. So that was that. There were a couple other robberies. Yeah, but I, I got off lucky. Um, I never carried a weapon. 
a lot of drivers carried carried guns or carried weapons, and we talk, they would talk about that a lot, about whether some people thought I was stupid to not be carrying a weapon. But um, I would never have wanted to have to use a gun, um, so I'd rather kind of not have it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was serious, but, you know, all of that is part of... Um, the challenge of, as I was, as I was saying, the figuring out what sort of constitution you have and whether or not you have the abilities to handle the a situation like that, because yes, it was dangerous, very dangerous. And you had to develop certain skills to deal with it. How did you find that it, I mean, it seems like there's an obvious parallel to a lot of boxers that we have some thing in the culture, raging bull, Rocky, whatever, uh, I saw a documentary that was the gateway drug for me into wanting to do boxing. You go in there, you've practiced a little bit, and then you get hit in the face, and it's like this is the reality versus the romanticized illusion of what it is. You mentioned Taxi Driver, and it sounds like New York for you also. You have this tremendous cinematic imagination about what you're drawn into. Um, how did Taxi Driver line up with your actual experience of living that, that career? for a time very closely um mm -hmm. yeah very closely uh that movie was uh <clears throat> um you know and i've seen it i've seen it many times since i go back to it every now and then in fact a few years ago it was an anniversary of the movie and they had a screening of it here in new york with the entire cast scorsese de niro Keitel. Jodie Foster, I mean, everybody who was involved in the making of it. Um, you know, it's hard to even put that into words. There's, there's the cinematic visual style of New York at that time um, that was portrayed by that movie. And, but more important than that, it was the psychological, it was the psychological reality of having that relationship as a driver to the environment around you. So you're in this chariot and you're driving around the scene and you're, you're an observer. You're the ultimate observer. Um, I always think of it as a metaphor. Cab driving was like a metaphor for being a writer. You're in the middle of things, but you're kind of removed from it as a driver. You're observing it. You're, you're taking it in visually. You're, you're like driving through Dante's hell. And, and then every now and then you'll get <clears throat> someone thrust into your cab and you'll have all these kind of emotional experiences that you're having to deal with sort of spontaneously and on the cuff. And some of those could be quite sort of dangerous and off-center. So you're always on your toes and there's a loneliness about it that's very intense that I, that that movie really captures very well. Um, you feel removed from it. You feel, you feel alienated from it. Uh, you feel a sense of alienation driving around in the city in that way. You see a lot of horrible things. You see people getting beat in the street and you, you see a lot of things that are, are, the average human being should not see, you know, you see, you saw human cruelty, you see some human kindness, you see a lot of um, ways in which human beings interact in a, in a really naked environment, like the city at a time when it was kind of desperate. 
Um, so all of that stuff, really, I, I had had strong feelings of that from having seen the movie. And then when I experienced it as a driver, I was feeling like I was living it. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned doing some freelance work where you were looking at boxing a little bit. I wonder, you're in this interesting era in New York with the rise of Mike Tyson being kind of emblematic of New York. I mean, I remember as a kid hearing that he was from Brownsville and just thinking, that sounds like the scariest place in the world to be from. I can't imagine these poor people who have to get in the ring with him. And they were all petrified of who he was. I, I just wonder, was that at all on your radar, Tyson, when you're freelancing? Did you pitch a Tyson story or something like that? To you know, I, I did pitch a Tyson story. Um, his trainer, Kevin Rooney. Right, Irish. Yeah, right. I was going to do a piece on that for Irish America magazine, and it never happened for some reason. I, I, I'm not sure why. Yeah, Tyson in the 80s. Uh, Tyson and boxing in the 80s was kind of the dominant cultural story in yeah. New York. Um, I think even if you weren't into boxing, because it exploded into particularly when he married Robin Gibbons and, and everything surrounding that, that exploded in the media in a way that, that made it a, a dominant story at the time. I saw some early Tyson fights. I saw him fight a guy named Sammy Scaff, mm -hmm. who, who he knocked out, I think, in like 12 seconds. White guy, right? I mean, just beat him. I mean, uh, that's a highlight reel knockout, if I recall. It's one of the main highlight reel knockouts. <laughs> southern, southern white guy. Um, you would go to Tyson fights, you know, hoping for like a knockout in the first 10 seconds. And a lot of them were exactly that. Um, that's what was so exciting about Tyson those years. He delivered. You'd go to his mm -hmm. fight thinking he's going to knock this guy out in the first round, and he would knock the guy out in the first, not only the first round, he'd knock him out in the first 25 seconds. Um, I don't know if there had ever been a phenomenon, phenomenon like that in boxing where somebody delivered like that on a regular basis. Um, <clears throat> yes, I, I became, I knew people who knew Mike. I knew people who knew Kevin Rooney, um, you know, Tyson became, for almost anybody living in New York and kind of at a street level, Tyson was sort of like a litmus test. Everyone had an opinion about Tyson. How did you feel about Mike Tyson? And, and honestly, my feelings, like a lot of people, I think went from feeling he was a monster to feeling that he was a victim. You know, uh, you would run the emotional gamut in your feelings about Tyson. Um, was Were there any other fighters that, that, I mean, boxing seemed to have this kind of resurgence with Tyson that I remember him being marketed very clever, cleverly by his people, Bill Caton and Jim Jacobs, who said something to the effect of, your grandfather missed Jack Dempsey or Joe Lewis, your dad missed Allie, don't miss Tyson. And they were saying this about an 18-year-old kid, yeah. but it... But kind of like the way Cuba captured our imagination, what a clever framing device for a new generation to be like, this is the guy I'm going to tell my grandchildren about. Um, Don't you feel in a way that ultimately Mike uh, rebelled against that? I, yes, I, I think he did and he didn't. I mean, everything about Mike Tyson was a construct where he was quoting the past. You know, he has Jack Dempsey's haircut. 
He has Arthur Ashe on his shoulder. He has Mao Zedong on his shoulder. He has Che Guevara on his stomach. He's wearing the black trunks that are quoting another champion. He would pose after knocking people out like Dempsey. Um, he was such a such an avid student of boxing, but really he was looking at the iconography to create this um, eclectic compilation of the most memorable quotes and poses of these great champions because he didn't know who he was. Yeah, he was he was a bullied lisping kid from Brownsville who could never defend himself, and then somebody twisted the head off a pigeon, and boom, the you know Beethoven's ninth emerges, the the violence equivalent of Beethoven's ninth emerges and but don't you think that off he goes don't you think that ultimately he sort of said you know okay you want a monster i'll give you a monster and 100 yeah and he i thought of that as kind of a an act of rebellion he's he sort of systematically destroyed uh the, all the good things about that image that had been created for him it was very uh like a Greek tragedy in a way. Um, but anyway, many, but you were asking a question about other fighters and, and yeah. I want to I go back to that because I did start writing about boxing a bit during this period. It was really the only sport that engaged me as a writer. And I started writing about boxing, mostly at the amateur level. It was amateur fighting that, it, that, that captured my interest. Um, and that was kind of by accident. I, I, I was doing a piece for a magazine called Brooklyn Bridge magazine, a nice magazine that wasn't around for very long. And I was writing a piece about the tradition of Brooklyn fighters, you know, both, both sort of historically and then also what was going on at the time. This was in the 90s. And so I started hanging out at the Bedside Gym which was a place where a lot of great fighters had come through at one time or another. Um, Mark Breland was the most recent champion to come out of that gym. And, uh, and Junior Jones and uh, a couple other fighters um, that were prominent at the time. Of course, Riddick Bow also came out of that, that gym. So it was a classic, mm -hmm. it was a classic Brooklyn breeding ground for fighters. And that was such a, I was so uh, lucky to have had that experience. It was not, not just as a writer, as a person, to, it was very, it was almost sacred to me to be in a neighborhood gym in a really poor neighborhood where young people are coming into that gym to literally try to salvage their lives, uh, make something of their lives. Coming from the harshest circumstances, broken families, violent families, poverty, coming into that gym on a daily basis, um, doing a routine of exercise, disciplined exercise, <clears throat> getting into the ring and sparring, taking punishment, dispensing punishment, it just seemed like a, the most raw and primal endeavor that you could see human beings doing, trying to make something out of their lives from, from, from getting hit and trying to take somebody out. Uh, the, the physical pr primal, primalcy of that 
And then the trainers who were in those gyms were always old, weathered guys who'd never made it past the sixth or seventh grade, but they had all this incredible wisdom, wisdom about boxing, wisdom about the streets, wisdom about life that they would try to teach and communicate to the fighters. It was really a beautiful thing to see, and I was really affected by it. And there was a period there where I would go to that gym on a daily basis, walk out there and go out there, and they were nice enough to just let me hang out as a fly on the wall and <clears throat> kind of take in the experience and occasionally <clears throat> talk to fighters. You know, in boxing, you don't really interview people. That was one of the things I, I learned pretty early on. Uh, a lot of these old trainers would live in terror of the idea that you were going to try to interview them <laughs> because that meant they were going to have to articulate and they all felt sort of inadequate about their verbal skills even though many of them were quite brilliant, um, but, you know, they didn't have a lot of formal education. So you had to develop a way of interviewing people in boxing that was kind of different than other interviews. Maybe you've experienced this. It's, no question. It's much more informal. It's like a conversation. You really don't want the person to feel like they're being grilled uh, uh, the way you would interview a politician or a public official or something. Um, so anyway, I fell in love with that level and I would go to the Golden Gloves every year and I, I, I developed a real fondness for, for the sport at the, at the amateur level. And I would love to watch the relationship between young fighters and trainers and, and see how that went as they tried to go professional and, uh, all of that stuff. I still, I still find really interesting. Well, and so 1990, the Westies comes out. It's a bestseller. Are you able to sort of move into being a full-time writer? Are you financially emancipated by that book? And Yes, I stopped driving a cab. Okay. I stopped driving a cab in 88 when I, when I signed the contract for the book and had to start working on the book full-time. And uh, I left cab driving behind. And uh, became a full-time writer. Yeah, I mean, emancipated uh, is a nice word. I, I wasn't home free. One of the things you find out in, in writing is you can have sort of success as a book that does well, maybe a couple magazine assignments in a row so that all of a sudden you have money in your bank account. But it's never a permanent condition. It's always just a temporary thing. You always many times in my career, I've come back to the place where I had to hustle like it was 1985 all over again, you know, mm. um, and now, I mean, I've, I've done enough books and and everything that I have some sort of a comfort level with it and don't don't have to look back much. But I've been doing it for a long time and it took a long time before I got to a place of financial stability. Hmm. Well, and so. We're getting to Cuba. So this is the thing, obviously, selfishly, I am most intrigued by. Um, how how does that happen? How do you get over there? Does it live up to this imagination that you had of it from childhood? Um, yeah. And, yeah. That's another, Cuba's another one like New York. Yes, a place that I'd always dreamed about going before I went there. So it existed in me in some way before I ever got there. Um, you know, it was so fascinating. All I can say is 
I mean, there was, I had gone to Cuba a few times before I took on the assignment of writing Havana Nocturne. I went there with my wife at the time in the 90s during the special period. Uh, that was the first time I went there. Um, but what was interesting about going there to do the book is I was going there to do research. You know, I was researching this era of the mob in Cuba in the 50s. And so I had to navigate a bunch of things, how to do research in Cuba, how to access information. Um, when I was getting ready to go there to research Havana Nocturne, it was 2006, and it was right at the time that Fidel Castro went down with what was at the time kind of a mystery ailment. Mm-hmm. If you remember this, um, sure. he was suddenly very sick and disappeared from public view. And there was a lot of disinformation about what was going on. We found out all later what that was all about. That he had this horrible gastrointestinal issue and that he'd gone into the hospital in Cuba and he, they'd almost died on the operating table. And they'd had to fly him to Spain for secretly for some secret operation. But none of this was known at the time. And in fact, there was certain belief that he had died and that the Cuban government was was hiding it. Right. And they were and they were kicking journalists out of the country. They were not allowing people in the country. They were controlling the flow of information. Now, I had gotten a license from the U.S. Treasury Department to go there legally to do research. That took a long time. So I had a legal license to go there and I kind of had to go there during this period. And so I went to Cuba and uh, in the middle of all of this, and people were telling me, you're not going to get in. They're not going to let you in, you know, make up a story while you're there. People had all kinds of advice for me. So I went there and I just was totally straight. I arrived there and I told them, look, I'm here to research a book on this subject matter. I told them what the subject was. Um, It turns out, you know, Cuban government, likes having that story told. They like the story of how they chased the mafia out of Havana in the 1950s. So they, they kind of were open to the idea of me doing that research. And I remember it was really funny when I arrived there, they pulled me aside immediately. I was a lone gringo arriving there. I set off all their red flags. They pulled me aside. I was very ag- aggressively interrogated. I was getting to use all my Spanish, like immediately trying to explain myself. And uh, and it wasn't going that well. And then at a certain point, the, the uh, agent opened my luggage and right on top of my clothes, I had packed a paperback copy of the collected writings of Jose Marti. Just by accident, <laughs> I had put that in my bag last, right on top. So he opens my bag, and there's uh, this beautiful copy of uh, Jose Marti's writings. And you could see the guy's the, the weight <laughs> lift from this guy's shoulders, and his eyes light up. And it was like a holy talisman. He completely changed his temperament. He looked at it. He looked curiously at it. And then he looked at me. He said, you read, you read this? I said, yeah, I was reading it on the plane on the way here. And he put it back down and he said, "Okay, um, wait right here. Stay here with your things. I'm going to go check on some things and then I'll come back. And he disappeared and he's gone for quite a while, like 40 minutes. And I was thinking, I don't know, it's about 50 50. 
that I'm going to, they're going to let me in. And then he came back and he had a smile and he said, bienvenidos, you know, welcome, come on in. And I'm pretty sure it was that copy of Jose Marti's collected writings that got me in there. Interesting. Well, and when you're visiting, when you're visiting Havana, how much of seeing that city and the underbelly of crime there, the, you know, because we're kind of insiders in terms of we've read so much research into this. Um, I think a lot of people don't know some of the basic imagery of when Fidel takes over, um, every parking meter is attacked because it was a sign of theft of the people by the Batista regime. Um, Fidel closes down all the casinos. One of the World Heritage Sites, Old Havana, that all tourists go to was earmarked to be turned into a parking lot for an island casino that was going to be built in the harbor. Um, like, I found it this transformative uh, experience of revisiting America in a lot of ways. As an outsider of the United States, being a Canadian, I mean, I'm 100 miles away from you in Vancouver from, from Tacoma. Yeah. Uh, um, this was my time warp into the United States as much as it was into Cuba's history. Like, it was, it was like a double-exposed photograph of... America and and Cuba yeah. because they're so obsessed with one another. Yeah. Um, but through that, with me was was also this going to a kid chocolate to watch a boxing match with no advertising, no announcers, no TV. Um, everybody's smoking. Everybody's drinking. I was like, this is what all those beautiful photographs are like of Madison Square Garden watching great fights. And this doesn't exist in America anymore, but America's so nostalgic for this. And it's right here in this enemy, you know, one of that, the access of evil against the United States. Like it was just so paradoxical and contradictory for me. I wonder if you had some of those experiences of revisiting America through, through contemporaneous Cuba. Oh yeah, absolutely. All of that, all all of the above. Yes, um, God, it's 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 hard to even encapsulate that because it 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 plays out on so many different levels. Um, yeah, well, this particular story of the of the mafia in Cuba is very much an American and Cuban story. So if you're if you're approaching Cuba through that history. What you're talking about is exactly what you're experiencing. You're experiencing the relationship between these two countries. Uh, and that is just endlessly fascinating. And the thing that makes Cuba so fascinating, uh, it's almost a cliche now for us, people who've been there a number of times. But when you go there the first time, you're so overcome by this. Cuba is in such a strange, wound up in such a strange time warp because of the revolution and then the embargo and the hostility between the United States and Cuba and the lack of development in Cuba because of the embargo and other things. Cuba became this kind of weird little vortex, unlike anywhere else in the world, that kind of got stuck in 1959. And when you go there, you see it in all the way, you know, you see the old cars, you see the architecture and buildings that haven't changed. You see clothing styles that basically are the same as in 1959. The place is in a time warp, particularly Havana. 
and and it's it's almost like a it gives you a dizzy feeling when you first go there you're like where am i am am i am i am i am i lost in some kind of time warp here and um so that's really interesting and then what you start to find out is you start talking to cubans for the first time and that's equally as fascinating because you start to realize Cubans have no hostility towards Americans at all. Cubans have a very sophisticated understanding of what happened with the revolution and then the United States government's response to the revolution. And they really don't hold that against Americans. For one thing, they figure if you're an American and you're in Cuba, you're probably sympathetic to Cuba in some way because you had to get there. And just, just to get to Cuba... Yeah means that it meant something to you to do that. And they appreciate that and they understand that and they want to have a dialogue with you about it. So you start having all these fascinating conversations with Cubans about the relationship between Cuba and the United States. It's a totally unique experience those first couple of times you go there and, and you're, you're trying to take it all in and there's just, there's just nowhere else in the world like it. And... And so, like, with your return to Cuba with, with the corporation and this amazing discovery of Jose Battle, um, El Gordo, or Gordito, um, what was that like to uncover somebody like him? And I, I understand, uh, you know, it's being made into a film. I think Benicio Del Toro is slated to play the lead. Um, what, do you, what do you make of... I mean, you are throwing red meat at America's obsession for this country. I think when Obama went there, it was the number one most Google-searched travel location in the world. Um, what do you make of this fixation that Americans have with Cuba, where I, I think it was said of Cuba that it, it's where America has the lowest profile. And I think, I think they mean that in terms of the advertising, that it is very odd to be in a space where you are not bombarded with the like tremendous targeting that American advertising has, where a lot of the best minds in this country are just there to separate you from your money at every moment that you leave your door. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're for a lot of people that never went further than Godfather Two as their entry point to what happened in Cuba. It seems like you are. Um, I don't know, just, just wetting their appetite for... Uh, I, hope, I hope so. <laughs> um, you know, Cuba's the forbidden fruit. Uh, yeah. It's always been the forbidden fruit, and that's part of the attraction, the allure of it. And what's interesting about that is it's, it became the forbidden fruit because of the embargo and the trading with the Enemy Act and, and the fact that um, U.S. citizens are not supposed to go there, not supposed to spend money there, are not supposed to have anything to do with Cuba. And that only added to the allure of Cuba as the forbidden fruit. But, you know, even back in the 50s, the era that I write about in Havana Nocturne, Havana was the forbidden fruit. It was always this place where there was sex and sexual tourism and there was licentiousness, and there was prostitution, and there was gambling, and there was the idea that you would go there and do things that you might not do in your normal everyday life back in Wyoming or Illinois. 
or Michigan or wherever you were coming from. So it's funny that that relationship between the United States and Cuba, which really reached its pinnacle in the 50s because of the mob creating a kind of Shangri-La there, that that remained part of the attraction even to the present day because Mm -hmm. Cuba is still a forbidden fruit. Um, Yes, I mean, the thing you notice when you go there that's really appealing if you are a certain type of person is the lack of billboards, advertising stuff, the lack of commercialization, the fact that you're in a non-capitalist environment. Wow, that is, when you go there and you, I first noticed that when I ventured out beyond Havana around the island of Cuba and it's pristine, it's untouched, Uh it's undeveloped, it's non-commercialized in a way that's unlike anything we know as capitalist North Americans. Um, it's so refreshing and, um, I'm sure you felt it. I felt it. And you come back from Cuba and you tell your friends about it and they want to go there and they go there and they experience that and they come back and they find it exciting and tell their friends about it. I think that's why Cuba has developed this mystique. Yeah. I just, I find it so interesting that people in such opposition to their politics um, how things are structured um, are not breaking down the doors to get to Puerto Rico where it's like you, you have the same climate and all these comforts and amenities of, of regular American life, but they want the exotic, they want the difference. It's like they're in a, almost in a weird way kind of flattered that Cuba wants to do its own thing when I remember at 18 seeing all of Europe and just thinking this all of these places, all of these capitals of Europe, for the most part, just seems like their economy is run on tourism. They're kind of museums for, yeah. for tourism. Uh, Havana didn't have any of that infrastructure, and it was like just bizarre to see that human beings can function with their happiness or fulfillment being defined in some way beyond materialism, because I yeah. didn't really know that could exist anymore from how I grew up. Totally true. Um, very true. It's part of, for this, those of us who've gone there, it's what we love about the place. It's kind of hard to describe that, what you just described to people that haven't experienced it. You kind of have to go there and experience that to know what that feels like. It changes your attitudes about capitalism and modern commerce and everything. It's very wonderful to drive out into the countryside and not see billboards and commercialization and exploitation of the of the natural environment it's kind of amazing uh it's kind of amazing to be in a city a real great vibrant city that's not driven by commercialization and profit motive and i mean yeah there's people doing business trying to get by and make a living um but it's not this relentless commercial machine that we experience in the United States. So that's a big part of the appeal of going there. But I want to mention something about the corporation, which you brought up. I want to go sure. back, back to that for a minute. Jose Miguel Battle and the, and the Cuban uh, organized crime in the United States. That is very much an American book. Mm-hmm. That, that is a book about what happened after the revolution. 
after it starts with the Bay of Pigs invasion and then the Cubans in the United States formulating this criminal underworld to try to take back Cuba. Uh, this is what was so fascinating to me about that subject because these books wind up being really bookends on that history, uh, flip sides of the same coin, one being almost a sequel to the other, the mobster exploitation of Havana in the 1950s and Havana Nocturne, and then the answer to the question, what happens when the mafia gets chased out of Havana? What's the response to that? And that's really what the corporation was. So most of the research I was doing there was in Miami and Union City, New Jersey, and the places where all the Cubans settled here in the United States. I did make another trip to Havana just because I'm always trying to come up with flimsy excuses to make a trip to Havana. So any anything that's close enough to get me there, I'll, I'll go. But I didn't really need to, to, to research that particular book. How do you... How do you feel like, I mean, when you are researching, I've just noticed so often, I think it was said, actually the guy who edits this podcast um, left Cuba, grew up in the, the Isle of Pines, and uh, he said you can always tell a, a Cuban in a group of Latinos because their eyes are moist. Their eye, they're always either about to laugh their way into tears or something will be mentioned and they'll cry out of grief. The emotion is just so close to the surface with these people. Um, when you have written so much about Cuba, my mother left a communist country with Russian tanks rolling through Budapest. Uh, she saw people executed, hung, shot, that kind of thing. She was not nostalgic for the good old days of Budapest communism, like anything to do with that. Like she isn't weepy when she eats paprika. In, in her dining or anything but cubans have you know music comes on i've never seen people respond to music like they do of of their sense of home what do you think it is about these people that has this connection to home the way they do and and i mean i've seen it there in in, in havana and i've seen it just as much in miami even with people who weren't even born or maybe even haven't even been to cuba it's I just wonder what you make of that as an outsider who spent so much time ruminating about this place and these people. Well, there's a lot to that. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I've spent time in Cuba getting to know Cubans who stayed after the revolution. And I've, in this later book, I spent a lot of time with Cubans in the United States uh, who, are, who are at a totally different place in terms of their feelings about Cuba the government of Cuba, the actual physical place of Cuba. So yeah, I've I've had to navigate that and and get to know all the different um, shadings of that experience, and it's just endlessly fascinating to me. I say this to Cubans all the time. I say this to Cubans on both sides of that divide. I say this is really interesting history to me. <laughs> your your cultural story is just so fascinating to me. A lot of a lot of it of course is the revolution and the and the rift that was created by the revolution, the divide that was created, so the Cubans that left and the Cubans that stayed. I think when you talk about home, well, I guess whichever side of that divide you're on, if you think about it, when there's a cataclysmic revolution like that, 
whichever side of that divide you're on, you're going to wind up with a kind of extreme feeling about the concept of home, either because you're there still and you're making all the sacrifices that are involved in still being there, or you left it and now you're separated from it. And now you're going to have all that emotional turmoil of being separated from it. Either way, you wind up with this kind of uh, extreme version of what home means to you. And it's loaded with all kinds of emotional content. Um, you would die for it. I mean, literally die for it. You know, Cubans are kind of uh, emotionally, can be kind of emotionally extreme anyway. That's just how they express their emotional makeup. And when you talk about the uh, concept of home and identity, Cuban identity, I mean, these are, these are things that generations of people have died over. Start right. with the revolution and then the, the counter-revolution, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion and the whole thing that was created in the efforts to kill Castro and take back Cuba. I mean, that was a, that was a sub-narrative of the Cold War that, that ran for half a century. Um, and secretly bankrolled by the CIA, involving all kinds of operatives over the years, um, straying into area, areas of American politics that are endlessly fascinating to me, like the idea that the Watergate burglars, that five out of seven of the Watergate burglars were Cuban Bay of Pigs veterans. There's so many things about uh, the uh, the Iran Contra scandal was just loaded with Cubans involved in that. There's a narrative thread that runs through um, American Cold War politics from the time of the Bay of Pigs invasion right up to the present day that involves aspects of, of what we're talking about. And and lastly, before I let you go, uh, having covered boxing during this kind of glory era in New York, I mean, relative to the grandeur of what Tyson represented in New York to the rest of the world with a, a great heavyweight American champion. Did you get to have an opportunity to see much boxing in Havana or, or in Cuba in general? No, I, d I saw none. Um, I was kind of single-minded in my research obligations. So I would see that. And that was a pretty broad topic because the mob in Cuba in the 1950s created an entire kind of social cultural universe, the clubs, the music, the entertainment scene. Um, so that's what I have always spent most of my time researching when I'm there. I've never, I've never um, done the boxing thing. Although the last time I was there, just about a year ago, I had the experience of a friend taking me into a gym. And I have some photos of that. Oh, uh, God, what a, I mean, you, I don't think you could get the best Hollywood set designer to create that, <laughs> the environment I saw. First of all, because it's organic and authentic and real, but it was just so perfect. Like so much of what you see in Havana, you know, we're not used to seeing things that are, are real like that. It's not curated. That w it wasn't. This gym, which was so filled with flavor and it was kind of run down, but had this grace and grandeur to it, um, you couldn't you could you couldn't fake it. You can't fake something like that. I yeah. mean, 
you know, you see theme bars. Uh, I always get a laugh when I go into bars in the United States that are like Irish theme bars, you know, an Irish bar from the countryside, which they'll try to create in midtown Manhattan. And they've done as good a job as you can do. They've created a theme bar. You can't create a theme gym. You can't fake that. You can't, you know, when there's a certain way that this, there's a sweat stain on the heavy bag or um, rust on the equipment uh, because it's been there for 50 years or uh, some kind of oil spill in the middle of the room for some reason, probably because the gym was also used as an auto garage right. uh, at the same time. Um, the authenticity of it, boy, you, come, you, you stumble across that again and again when you walk around Havana. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, TJ. Thanks, Bryn. Take care of yourself. Likewise. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>